We are in the Gospel of John. We took a, like a half time, like a time out for a few months in the Gospel of John, but we are going to begin again, John chapter 11, and we're going to finish on basically Easter. So um, John chapter 11, it's a big chapter and we're going to kind of look at it in some chunks. Now, if you're, if you're anything like me, uh, you love surprises. I mean, my guess is this Christmas, maybe most of you got a surprise. I got this, like, uh, surprise gift for my parents. It's this acupuncture mat that you just lay on, and it hurts, like, horrible for, like, five minutes. And then, I don't know how to explain it, you just go into, like, this other world. It's fantastic. It was this delightful surprise. Like, we, we love surprises, don't we? I, it can't just be me, right? An, an unexpected gift at an unexpected time, Right? Husbands, that's just key, right? That's what I do for my wife all the time. Now, why do we love surprises? I think in many ways, God works in surprises, doesn't he? I mean, you can't read the Bible and not see God's surprises. I mean, story after story after story is all about surprise, God shows up. So, So you have women in the Bible who are too old and they can't get pregnant, and then God shows up and they have a child. Or you have, uh, there's children and you just assume, oh yeah, like culturally, God's going to work through the firstborn and surprise, God works not in the firstborn, but the secondborn. Or you have like women like Esther and you're like, oh, she gets married off to this king, but then surprise, she's at the right time, at the right place to, to save God's righteous people. You have Jericho, right? God's people are small. They're going to get destroyed. And God surprises them as they march around the city, the walls crumble. I mean, think of Joseph. Story after story after story, surprise, God shows up. Or even just think of the gospel message, that the gospel that we preach, the gospel that cling to, the gospel that saves, it is a story all about surprise, right? God saves sinners, surprise. Like our our world doesn't make up that story. God saves those who don't live a perfect life, who can't just pull themselves up. Surprise, God saves the outcast. God makes not my people and makes them my people. Surprise, doesn't see that coming. I mean, my my guess is that we can all name people. Maybe it's you. And you're like, that person's never coming to Christ. And then, surprise, God shows up. I mean, the core of Christianity is all about Surprises, is it not? Well, this morning in John chapter 11, and this really is like one of the key chapters in the gospel of John. In chapter 11, God shows up with surprise after surprise after surprise after surprise. In all, and there's lots of them, I'm going to divide it up into four kind of shocking surprises that we find in John chapter 11. The backdrop, and you know the story, but the backdrop is death. And In one sense, death isn't a surprise. Like, death comes to all humanity post-Genesis 3. But it's it's what Jesus does in the midst of death that makes this so surprising. So in all, we're going to kind of chunk down this large text into four different uh, sections, and I'm just going to give you and point out to you surprise after surprise after surprise. And I think in doing so, we're going to learn something amazing about God. And also, 
It's amazing truths about how it relates to our lives. So go there with verse 1. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Then when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciple, let us go that we may die with him. We'll pause there. So at the end of chapter 10, we have Jesus who was in Jerusalem for a while. He has left Jerusalem and he's out where kind of John the Baptist was out. He's sort of at an undisclosed location a few days away from Jerusalem. And he's with his disciples and he's ministering. And while he's there, he gets news. Like he gets a telegram. He gets a text message from uh, Mary and Martha. And they say that their brother Lazarus is gravely ill. And though we don't know a lot about their relationship between Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who are all siblings, and Jesus, we do know that Jesus had some deep intimacy with them. I mean, multiple times they're called those whom he loves. So whatever we can say, there is a friendship. They practice hospitality to Jesus, and there was a connectedness to Jesus and this family, in many ways, maybe like none other family. And so he gets word that they're ill. But Jesus responds to that in verse 4 with kind of something interesting. He says, uh, don't worry, this illness isn't going to lead to death. Now, in one sense it does. And so what Jesus is saying is, Lazarus is going to make a pit stop to life through death. He's going to die, but that's not going to be the ultimate reality in Lazarus' life. He's going to come back to life. So here, this isn't the surprise, I don't think. Here, Jesus basically says, yes, he's ill, he's going to die, but I'm going to raise him from the dead. And then he explains why. He says, verse 4, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So basically he's saying, not that this act will bring glory to God, though that is true. He's saying that what is about to happen will be such a manifestation of that it will bring glory to Christ. Like Christ is going to manifest glory in this act. 
And in some sense, everything's going to change from this point on in the narrative of John. And so, then we get our shocking surprise. I think this is the shocking reality, verse 5 and 6. This is what Jesus says. This is what John tells us, that Jesus, his kind of game plan, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Mary, or sorry, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So, because he loved them, when he'd heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days longer in the place where he was. I mean, imagine if you called me and said, Stephen, my car just broke down on I-5. Can you come and get me? And I said, I love you. I'm going to be there in two days. That's what Jesus does. Jesus displays his love by delaying. Isn't that interesting? Then later on in the text, Jesus, I I think maybe supernaturally, we're, we're not told how he knows. He knows that Lazarus has died. And that's when they begin to go. There's this sort of debate with his disciples. They're like, we just left Jerusalem. If we go back, they're going to stone us. They're going to kill us. And I just love, maybe because I'm a twin, I love verse 16. Thomas is like, let's go and let's die, right? He's like, whatever, let's just go. He goes, he's like, I'm with you, you know, Jesus, Braveheart style. But eventually Jesus kind of talks him into it and says, okay, yep, we're going to go back. But Jesus has to wait. He has to wait until Lazarus is not just dead, but dead, dead. Because, you know, we have sort of modern science and meta, medical facilities and everything, but, but in, there, were t- there were stories in the first century where people were thought to have been dead and they were put in a tomb, only they came out because they weren't dead. They just had a really faint heart. And so Jesus has to make sure that Lazarus is dead, dead. I mean, later on in verse 39, uh, Mary's going to talk about the tomb has an odor. So Lazarus is dead, dead. And Jesus' delay makes sure of it. So Jesus here is purposely delaying, coming back, making sure that Lazarus is dead. And all of this is a manifestation of his love for this family this community, and Lazarus himself. Now, sometimes we think delaying is a form of cruelty. But it doesn't always have to be. Um, I I remember a a friend of mine was a campus minister in Oregon, and he had this this plan. He always did this, but for some reason... None of the college students uh, got wind of what his plans were. But, but he, would lead, he would co-lead a Bible study with a, a guy. And he'd do it for about two or three months where he'd lead everything. And he'd be modeling it. They'd be following. But they'd lead this Bible study. And then about two or three months in, he would be delayed. And he'd text about an hour ahead and say, hey, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm held up. I can't come to the Bible study. And the college student would just have to lead it all by himself. It was purposeful. He, he knew if he wasn't there that he would kind of rely on him, so he had to be delayed in order for him to kind of sink or swim, right? To, to, to grow up in maturity. And so he delayed as an act of love. He wanted this college student to grow up and mature and to be a really good Bible study or small group leader, and so he purposefully delayed. So delay always isn't an act of cruelty. I mean, you could think of 
parents or in marriage, sometimes delaying and not just showing up and fixing everything is an act of love because you want someone to grow up and mature. And so here, Jesus delays, and in that delaying, it is an act of God's love, which, which doesn't mean it's not difficult. Prayers delayed, always hard. They're always difficult. But it's a good reminder too, I think, us all, that Christianity, not a sprint. Christianity is a marathon. As one author called it, it's long obedience in the same direction. It's that slow march of faithfulness, day after day, week after week, year after year, season after season, in the good times and the bad times. I think in many ways, this is an example to us of what maturity is. Maturity is saying, I will faithfully walk with you, God, even as it looks like you are delaying. Because I know that even in your delay, that delay is a manifestation of your goodness and your love to me in this season. So surprise number one, God, or as it were, Jesus, displays or manifests his love for his friends by not coming. Surprise number two, Jesus comforts those who are mourning by drawing attention to himself. Go to verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he, now he and his disciples have gone from kind of outside of Bethany to right outside Bethany. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection, of, in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus travels with his disciples, and they go right outside of Bethany, and the morning has begun. So The family and the community are surrounding Martha and Mary and consoling them and singing, you know, dirges and laments and and sad songs. And and you can just almost, you know, experience night after night. They're just sharing stories and weeping and crying and comforting. And so Jesus is literally, in one sense, walking into death. And as this happens, Mary stays in the house and Martha goes out to greet Jesus when she hears that he's close. And Mary, or sorry, Martha, has a, has a word for Jesus. It's sort of a, it's not framed as a question, but it is a question underneath this statement. This is what Mary, or sorry, this is what Martha says to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, the question really is, where were you? 
Now, there's a few ways to read this, and in many ways, uh, Mary's going to ask a similar question later on. You could read this as Martha being cynical, as Martha accusing Jesus of ministerial malpractice. Or you could interpret this as she had a hopeful curiosity and was just really confused in the midst of her sorrow. I think that's what's going on. I don't think she's cynical or accusing Jesus. I think that there's hope in this suffering. And I think you see it when you just keep going. She even says, like, anything you would ask the Father, you're going to grant. She's in her in her mourning and her sorrow. She's trying to put all the pieces together. And she knows that Jesus could have come earlier. He doesn't. And so she's like, what, what is going on here? Well, then Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. And instantly Martha greets that with just classic orthodoxy. She goes, I know, Jesus. I know. At the second, he will be resurrected at the end of time, right? This is classic orthodoxy. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm talking about. You get an A on your theology. Yes, that's true. But I'm talking about something else. And then, Jesus is going to comfort her. And you'd think he'd say, yeah, tomorrow at noon, I'm going to rise him from the grave. doesn't say that. He then says, this is how I'm going to comfort you. I am the resurrection and the life. My, my guess is m- many of you have walked with people who have been in sorrow. Maybe particularly walking with someone uh, who has suffered uh, the loss of a loved one. And I can tell you what not to do. In the midst of sitting with them in their grief and sorrow, you should not direct attention to yourself. Okay? Let me just give you some advice. So you shouldn't say as they're processing maybe the the, the death of a a daughter or a son or a a brother, you shouldn't say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Three years ago, my grandmother died. And let me just tell you some helpful things that got me through it. Like, don't, don't do that, right? And in many ways, I think what Jesus is doing, it's even worse because Jesus doesn't even say, come here, Martha, let me give you a hug. He doesn't say, I'm praying for you. He doesn't say, how are you feeling? Like, let me help you process your feelings right now. Like all the things that we ought to do, that we ought to just sit in people's grief, Jesus doesn't do any of it. He just says, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Which on the surface isn't helpful. She needs comfort. She needs hope. And Jesus now directs attention off of the moment, off of her sorrow, off of the the death of Lazarus and onto himself. And then when you think of uh, kind of all the Gospels, but particularly the Gospel of John, Jesus always does this. Like, Jesus is continually, there's something going on and Jesus is like, hey, are you, you got John chapter 5, are you reading your Old Testament? Yeah, it's all about me. That's an audacious claim. I mean, if, if it's not true, it's pretty narcissistic. Jesus is constantly directing people's attention from their situation, from their experiences, and saying, look at me. Who I am, my purpose in this world, reframes everything. If you want to make sense of your situation, your sorrow, your sadness, you need to first and foremost grapple with who I am, what I've come to do. 
You see, Jesus is constantly comforting people by directing attention off of their situation and onto himself. I, I think by way of application, that's what we ought to do. Subtly but inevitably, as we're walking with people in sorrow, whatever that sorrow is, in trial and in hardship, our job as Christians is to subtly but inevitably, gently with goodness, point them to Jesus. Because what Jesus is doing to Martha is of great comfort. Because basically he's saying, you're suffering. Lazarus is dead. But the greatest thing for you, Martha, is in the reality or in the truth or in the belief that I am the resurrection and the life. Because then he goes on to say that whoever believes in me shall have life and never die. And he's not talking about physical, right? He's now taken this physical object lesson, which is Lazarus' death, and he's now expanded into the spiritual truth, saying that if you believe in me, even if you die like Lazarus, you have life forever with me. So what Jesus is doing by reframing this sorrow and drawing attention to himself is the most applicable thing, the most helpful thing. It is the best thing Jesus can do because he's saying, if you believe in who I am, that I am the resurrection and the life, that even in this sorrow, even in this hardship, you can have hope because I am remaking all things. That's the second surprise, that Jesus directs the attention in the midst of discomfort. He directs and comforts by directing attention upon himself. But there's a third surprise in the narrative. Look at verse 28. Jesus is going to do, look at how Jesus responds to the people around him emotionally and how he responds to death itself. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he had been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard, hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
the man who had died came out, his hand and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, you might think this, the third surprise is the resurrection of Lazarus. I don't think that's the surprise here. I mean, back in chapter 11, Jesus says, hey, this is going to lead to death. So if, if this was meant to be a big like reveal, like those, you know, those movies that are supposed to like throw you off and then at the last minute, surprise! What? Jesus wasn't very good at this, right? I mean, he told everyone what was going to happen. He said, as a display or a, a manifestation of my glory, I'm going to do this. I don't think that's the surprise. I think the real big surprise is how Jesus emotionally responds. So in, uh, so, so in verse 28, right, uh, Martha goes back, tells her sister, you got to go, you got to go hang out with the teacher. You, G- Jesus wants you. And so she goes and, and you've got these people in her house who are mourning and needing comfort and they assume that she's going to the tomb to weep and so they go with. So you've got this large crowd, just imagine, like a large crowd of this funeral processional crying, weeping, singing laments, and they go and find Jesus. And he sees their compassion. He sees, sorry, he sees their, 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 their just, their sorrow. And he has compassion on them, doesn't he? In the midst of their mourning, in the midst of their weeping, it's described that, uh, that Jesus himself begins to weep. Jesus is so moved by their tears. He is so moved by their sorrow that he himself is emotionally moved with sorrow and sadness. In this section, there there really are two emotions that well up in Jesus in response to this scene. The first is compassion. You, you, You see it, right? Mary and Martha crying, weeping, wailing, Lazarus is in the grave, and Jesus begins to mirror their emotion by having that emotion himself. But but just for a second, why is Jesus weeping? Just think about this. Why is he weeping? It sort of doesn't make sense if he's weeping because in like three minutes, Lazarus is coming from the grave, and these songs of sadness are going to be shouts of praise. Like, are these crocodile tears? Like, why in the world is Jesus crying? He knows what's going to happen soon. It can't be that he's just sad at this moment because this sadness is about to be unraveled. He wept because he, greater than any person that has ever lived, could enter into the sorrow of humanity and experienced it so deeply. He experienced so much sadness in that moment as he entered into their sadness that he himself wept. Can you just... Just imagine that. Do you have a category that Jesus weeps in the midst of your sadness? He engages in your sadness, your sorrow, your hardship with such an extent that he himself wells up with sadness. But the second, the second emotion isn't just that he was filled with compassion. Jesus is ticked off. He says he's troubled, greatly troubled is the language. And it's the language of a horse snorting. Like everyone I read this week is like, the English translators get this wrong. Like it is far more than great, 
uh, than just being troubled. Jesus is angry. He's irate. He's snorting at something. And in some ways, you've got to figure out, well, what's the object of this greatly troubled? Well, what's the object of him being irate? What is he so frustrated about? And I think the simplest answer is, it has to be death. That's the context of all of this, death. And what death caused. That great enemy of God, death itself. Jesus is angry, irate. He snorts at death and its consequence and its devastation that has broken this world in some sense after the fall in Genesis 3. And so he has compassion and he's got anger, all in light of death. Now, I I think in some ways we have in our culture, and I got to be careful here, but in our culture we have made peace with death in an unhealthy, unbiblical way. I think we've sort of domesticated death. What I mean by that is, just just think about how our culture, even in some ways, how Christianity frames a funeral. We, We call it, not a funeral, we call it a celebration of life. We don't even want the casket or the dead person there because we don't want to be sad, we don't want to see the person, we don't want to be reminded, we just want to be reminded of the better place that they're at. Any idea of a burial, or thinking about death is just a joy kill. And so we want to frame these as memorials. We want to frame these as celebrations of life. And don't get me wrong, we ought to do that, right? Absent with the body, present with the Lord. Jesus himself tells the the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Those are all truths that we need to, to, to remember and to celebrate. They give us hope in the midst of a funeral. And yet, That truth is not mutually uh, inconsistent with the reality that death is an intrusion. It's an enemy. You're meant to not like it. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. I mean, if you've ever hung out with a friend or a family member on hospice, ravished with cancer, and you leave... You are like Jesus in one sense. My guess is if you, you are welling up with tears and emotions and love, that's what friendship does. That's what connection and intimacy does. You are, you, you are filled with love and you mourn and you have sadness that death is about to come. But that's not the only emotion you experience. You get angry and irate and you go, I hate you, cancer. Do you not? Love compels you to be angry at the intrusion that, that, that death has disfigured this image bearer. God created the world without death and sin broke it. Sin, death is an intrusion on this world and so we are right to be irate at death. I think that's why f- conducting a funeral is so hard because at a wedding, weddings are easy. They're just joyful occasions, Right? Right? That, that's, that's the emotion we're supposed to experience when we have a wedding. But funeral, you're supposed to have a couple emotions. Hope and also sadness. Hope in the resurrection. Hope that they are with Christ, Lord willing. But also at the same time, sadness. I don't think we're ever supposed to get used to death. 
We were not meant to get used to it. Well, in light of this, and this shocking kind of emotional response to the Mary and Martha and this whole scene in Lazarus, Jesus then miraculously, wonderfully displays and manifests his glory by raising Lazarus from the dead. And this is, and if many of you know that John's gospel is often called the, the, the book of signs because there's one sign after the other, and this is the seventh sign. The seventh sign that Christ himself is, or that Jesus himself is the Christ who holds and wields the keys of life and death himself. And so this miraculous sign, this physical sign, points to a spiritual reality that says this, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, that he is the Son of God, that you too can have life just like Lazarus, spiritual life. I mean, in a a, a few minutes, we're going to have a baptism. And when we do that, we are in many ways having a spiritual um, manifestation of of the physical reality that Lazarus experienced. So Lazarus physically rose from the grave, and what baptism is pointing to is a spiritual uh, resurrection. It's saying that that in Christ, in believing in Christ, that, that that old self is dead. And I'm now alive with Christ. That's what we're about to celebrate. Well, that's the third surprise. Christ's compassion for people, his anger at sin. But there's one more surprise. This is the biggest surprise. There's, this section is all surprise and it's dripping with irony. So look there in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God all who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went there in the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews uh, was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come out to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus' manifestation is just uh, been displayed. His glory is revealed in this resurrection. And, you know, faster than gossip in a sorority house, like word spreads, right? Everyone finds out. And the religious leaders are terrified. They're worried. So they think, if Jesus keeps performing these sorts of miracles, everyone's going to believe, and then they say our positions of authority are going to be ripped down, and the nation itself is going to be torn down 
by the Romans who had occupied them. So that's the tension. And it's in that tension that all of a sudden, Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks. And Caiaphas is all politics. I mean, politics at his worst right here, is he not? I mean, it's just a prudential matter. He says, you guys don't understand anything. There's a simple out here. It's better for, do you notice, one man to die than for the whole nation to perish? We need a scapegoat. That's what he's saying. Better one man dies than all of us. I mean, this is brutal politics. But surprise, Caiaphas, though that is a evil thought, is it not? He was prophesying. That's what the text says. He was speaking God's truth. He just didn't understand it. He just thought, this is best for us. It's best for the religious authority. It's best for us to keep power. It's best for us as a nation that Jesus should die and then we'll all be spared. But little does he know, that is the exact plan of God. I mean, this is utter, dramatic irony, is it not? And not only that, but little does he know that when Jesus dies, it's going to trigger an effect that they're going to lose the nation anyways. In about 30 years, they're going to lose. The last surprise is that Jesus is going to accomplish this resurrection life that is offered to all who believe. He's going to accomplish it through his death. There is going to be a scapegoat. He's going to accomplish all of this by his death. And I think just by way of application, sometimes we read, I mean, since children, we read Pharisee or religious leaders and we go, boo, internally, right? We instantly know they're the bad guys and we distance ourselves. But I think here, it's pretty easy to put ourselves in their shoes. They're attempting to hang on to that which is most dear. And so, in one sense, I think Jesus comes to us and says, do you want me or do you want your job or your status? You can have me or you can have your family or the protection of your family or the guarantee of your family or you can try to hold on to your family. Me or health? It's one or the other. If you put my face in me, you might lose the nation, but you got me. Is Jesus enough? The surprise really is that Jesus is going to accomplish all of this amazing reality and he's going to do so through his own death. That is the extent to which God is saving a people for himself. He's going to reverse this. This is the utter surprise. And I'm just going to finish this with one final question and then we're going to pray. And it is the haunting question over and over again in chapter 11, which is simply this. Do you believe? Is that, is that not the question that comes up over and over again? Jesus continually asks that most fundamental of questions. In light of the testimony of Jesus, raising Lazarus from the dead, which points to the great resurrection that he accomplished, the vindication of God when he dies, and that future, it actually procures our resurrection at the end. The question comes to all of us. Do you believe? Do you believe? Let's pray.
God, we, um, we are so grateful for all that you've done in our lives. And we thank you for pictures of resurrection life, even the picture of what we're about to accomplish and do here in baptism. And so we, we, we thank you for this testimony that we're about to hear. We, we thank you that baptism is a symbol of what God has already done for us, that outward expression of an inward reality. And so, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would encourage us and that as Rose is being baptized, we would remember our baptisms and therefore be reminded once again of the glorious reality of what you've done in our lives. Amen.